Our next guest, Baroness Bakewell, is a revolutionary voice in the House of Lords. Save those tax credits, yes. She has written four radio plays, two novels, and an autobiography, The Centre of the Bed, in which she describes her life from her birth in 1933, her school days in Stockport, her escape to Cambridge, her early career at the BBC, um, her affair with Harold Pinter. <laughs> Awkward pause. Um, which he, which he dramatised on stage. Um, this year she's chairing the Welcome Prize, which I'm one of the judges of, and I have to say it's incredible. Joan is our, is our chair, and there are five judges, and we all sit there desperately trying to impress her. Um, it's like she's our favourite teacher. We're like, please, no, I want to be the cleverest. Um, but she's very good with her um, bestowing of her favours. Anyway, tonight she's here to read from her latest memoir, um, thoughts on what she leaves behind. Is it possible, is it desirable to stop the clock? Please welcome DJB. Damien is a very, he's very impressive at many things, but he's very impressive at being a juror of the Welcome Literary Prize. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I thought it'd be lovely to have, I mean, I listened to the book of the week, which was fantastic. It was wonderful to hear you read it, but it'd be lovely to hear you read a little bit tonight and then. Yes, um, th this is a odd book because it's about um, growing old, but it's about life. It's about not giving in to growing old, stop the clocks, W.H. Auden, um, of course. Um, it's about my reluctance to get old and my insistence on staying as young as I can. Um, so it's a matter of looking back eight decades. That's a long time. Eight decades is full of stuff. And a lot of stuff has changed. So I thought I would write about the things that, no, that are just daily things that I used to take for granted in my life and have completely transformed since. So these are just little anecdotes about the world as it was and the world as it is. And some of you will recognize it and some of you will think, what's she talking about? <laughs> this is about how love and courtship, a word my parents would have used, are they courting, has changed. And at school, we were very excited We'd, there was no physicality in our lives, but we were very excited by poetry. And I think it's, poetry is the greatest form. Poetry is the greatest form. We had been reading the poems of John Donne. It wasn't a set text. Our English teacher at our well-mannered girls' grammar school would have blushed to confront giggling teenagers with Donne's more explicit love poems. So we must have sought them out for ourselves and shared them privately one-to-one, -one, much as the boys at the boys' grammar school were doing with the magazine Lilliput. It came as a shock, a warm, comforting shock, to know that a long-dead and famous poet wrote about the sort of things we were beginning to know. I am two fools, I know, for loving and for saying so. Then one of us shared John Donne with her boyfriend. 
it bonded them even closer. There may well have been a run on the bookshop. There was only one in Stockport, where I lived at the time, down by the bridge that Lowry had painted and opposite the Carlton Cinema. Licence my roving hand and let them go, before, behind, between, above, below. Suddenly, the gang I hung out with began whispering lines of poetry like this to each other and smiling. Don't misunderstand, there was, so, there was no, so far no overt sexual behaviour of any kind going on among us. We were all virgins and innocent, but eager. <laughs> <laughs> then one evening, walking home with Vivian from a dance, Robin made his move. The walk home took a long time and involved significant pauses under trees and beside mossy walls. The next day, Vivian took a piece of classroom chalk and traced the path that they had taken, pausing to mark the pavement with a large cross at each stopping point. <laughs> we went to see. There were six crosses. Six stopping points, each hallowed by the spirit of John Donne. Oh, my America, my newfound land. Except that this was Stockport where it rains a lot and the crosses were soon gone. <laughs> yes, it's... it's, it's um, that, that was beautiful. Thank you very, 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 very much. Um, in that same chapter, you talk about the, the thrill and it, the, the shock of the divorce of, of uh, Princess Margaret, or the marriage of, marriage of Princess Margaret to a divorce. Yes. Um, divorce was totally unacceptable in the world that I grew up in, and there was a big shock when the Queen's sister, Princess Margaret Rose, wanted to marry an equerry of the of the royal family, and he was a divorcee. And it was clear from all the photographs, even if there were grainy black and white photographs in the tabloid press, that she was really, they were struck with each other. They, the photographs show it. You could see them mm. doting eyes being exchanged and locked on each other. And the whole of um, the country was exercised about whether she should be allowed to marry him. Um, there were cabinet meetings about it. The prime ministers of all the Commonwealth countries expressed an opinion about it. Each of the bishops uh, expressed an opinion about it, and the Archbishop of Canterbury said it was a disgrace. What did your parents say? What was terrible was that Princess Margaret listened to them. Mm. And she did not marry the man she loved, and I don't think she was ever really happy again. She had a very unhappy later life, as you probably know. Um, it's, it was terrible. These things were dreadful, and they were accepted part of life. The royal family had a very had a superior place in people's lives then. They were seen as paragons who could do no wrong until, you know, everything started to go to pieces and we all began to know that they'd never behaved well anyway. Um, and she was... It was a terrible tragedy. And I remember that really changed generations because all the parents thought Princess Margaret should conform and all the young people, having read their John Donne, thought she should go for her lover. Mm. And 
she, I think, was seduced by the royal flummery because I think she was given the option of going under the disapproval of all the bishops and the Commonwealth and the cabinet and everything. She was told that she could make this decision, but she would have to give up any connection at all with the royal family. Mm. And I think that was too much for her. And so do you remember at that time thinking that you wished that she would do it and hearing from your parents that... That absolutely. I mean, did your mother speak to you about it? Your father were they were they kind of angry? Uh, I don't think we spoke. I think such things because we. I knew that they disapproved a divorce because there was a woman in the street who had been divorced, <laughs> and we knew she was no good because she dyed her hair. <laughs> These were very severe times. <laughs> These were very severe suburban judgments. It, which were really terrible to grow up with, really hard to grow up with. Mm. And so, you know, as I go through the decade, this is, I'm talking about the 40s and the 50s. These were the prevailing attitudes. And it was a very severe world in which um, to try to stake out your own place because there, were, there was an agreement the parents disapproved and had their values. The school disapproved of the same things and had shared the same values. And the church, which was very powerful in those days, also disapproved of the same things and, that, and shared the values. So you were fighting a whole network that all agreed about what was correct behavior and what was bad behavior. To grow up against that background was really quite a challenge to think for yourself, to do defiant things like wearing lipstick. Wearing lipstick was really bad news. I had to wear, I wore lipstick and then at the door before I turned the key in my lock and the lock and came into my house, I had to rub it all off. And my mother, of course, ever eager to spot a failing, saw that my I had bruised my lips in the rubbing of the lipstick. And she said, you've been wearing lipstick, haven't you? And that was a real crisis. That was a crisis of my teenage life. I mean, if, if, it's hard to exa exaggerate um, to you how such a tiny thing like that can really start be part of a whole pattern of behavior that breaks you up. But I you think know. this is what Garth was talking about, isn't it? I mean, the things I, that we learn when we're children. When you're four, yeah, you know, yes, when you're 14 year old boy. And, you know, these are all these messages that you receive. So you're a slut if you dye your hair or you wear, right. you wear lipstick. What were the other rules? What were the other things that you were Well, I mean, you were, you were, you were not meant to kiss boys, obviously. Obviously. You didn't do that. You didn't do that. And, and it was, it was so strange. How did you think you had come into being? I mean, was there ever. That was never referred to. Never, never referred, referred to. But it was also, you see, because young blood will find a way, you. Um, my parents, who I had a boyfriend because I, you had to have someone to go to dances with. So there was a boy who was approved. Um, and. I would say, my parents would go out and I'd be staying uh, at home looking after my younger sister, and I would say, can he come round? And my parents said, you, you cannot be alone in the house with him. You cannot be in the house alone with him. So what, of course, we did was we went to the cinema, and then we went 
down the back alley on the way home. So that the, the idea that they were being very protective and that you were to conform to their order threw up, as it were in their eyes, deviant behavior mm. in order that, that you should just express natural high spirits. Mm. So I do rejoice in, in the, this book is a re rejoicing at how much things have changed and how much they've changed for the better. Many, many things. I mean, were there any pleasures in the transgression? I mean, for you at that point, and now that, that now that you know, see your children, there's less for them to transgress. Are we, are we missing out? Do we need a bit of shame, really, just to feel well, good? Well, it's it's quite it's quite familiar, isn't it, for people to say it was much more fun when it was bound. Mm. It, 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 was, it had its own fun, it had its own challenge, mm. but it was a lie, and it was a lie to the human spirit, you know, so that although it was devious and, and that's a joke and it's nice to get the better, mm. to actually deny something so forceful, as we've just, we heard before, mm. is, is so damaging, and it lives with you, it lives with you. And what I have seen over the decades... How does it live with you? How does it specifically live with you? Well, what, what happened, of course, was that I resolved not to bring up my child, my children like that. So I, they were much more trouble because I, I wanted them to have lots of freedom and they enjoyed that. Um, but, <laughs> but that gets tricky. Uh, I mean, you know, there are the pills and the cigarettes and the, you know, whatever might be going on in the bedrooms. And I, um, but it, it was, you are all, there were, many of you are very young people, and you are the beneficiaries of the changes that I had to live through. The generation of your parents, my, my We're generation. We're grateful for that. <laughs> but, the fact, but the fact is that you are buoyant and beautiful and confident in a world that was changed for you because we all knew that this repressive, in, inhibited world was damaging. And you were beautiful children and you're beautiful adults. Oh. So I want to ask you about, about those changes, and I think this is again something that, that, that Garth talked on, and Susan actually as well, about the changes that yet have got to happen. But do you think the changes that have happened, that you've helped to pioneer in your own personal life and in your professional life, um, do you think that the changes are permanent? Can we trust that they will always be there? The biggest change I've lived through, and I've seen it sort of early on, and it's now booming away, but it's, the journey isn't finished, is the changing role of women. I mean, the emergence of women, the actual... Uh, but, but, but don't applaud because we still only earn 78% of what the men earn. The average earnings in this country still leave women far behind. And in fact, women should all down tools on November the 17th because the rest of the year we're working for free. <laughs> Won't do. So you're not going into the House of Lords that day? <laughs> <laughs> No, I, there are massive improvements, huge improvements. And the improvements, of course, I'm in my 80s, so sometimes I'm quite anxious that things are going too far. And one of the things that I interests me is, is the how, how parents have changed. Now, my parents, as you can see, we can all do without parenting like that. Um, I, I, I like to think that my my children benefited. What I see among young parents now is a, an almost competitive will to get 
parenting right. There's a great anxiety about how to parent. I mean, it, there was a time when you just got pregnant and had children. Now you have to clear the hurdles of the pregnancy police, you know, the, the, the diet. You have to prepare yourself for your pregnancy by get, having the right diet. When you're pregnant, you have to give up soft, soft cheese and pate. And I smoked and drank through two <laughs> So you, you win some battles and you lose some battles. <laughs> but the thing that concerns me, and you will all have opinions on this, is is there a, a degree to which the, the family as a unit has become too focused on the children and the children's needs, schedules, football matches, music lessons, going, I mean, are we doing too much of it? I sometimes wonder, because parents have got their own lives to live, and I sometimes think they should just tell the children to shut up, we're going to have our own way. <laughs> So many, so many um, approving parents out there, um, and not. Um, so at the beginning of the book, you say, uh, very early on, you say, time, it has always haunted me. I've been thinking about that sentence and, and what, it, what it means for you. When did you know that time was haunting you? What were your experiences of it as a when child? And, and, and what are your experiences? How does time feel to you now? Well, it's running out. Time is running out now when you're my age. But when I was young, I was haunted by New Year's Eve. My parents would go out to a, a party and I was looking after my younger sister. And there was a clock, as it were, ticking away, one of those old-fashioned 1930s clock that you had on the mantelpiece. And I remember watching the clock thinking, the year I am in now is about to pass into history and cease to exist and not have any reality at all except in history books. And a new year, a brand new year, which will take its place in history, is about to arrive. And I, could, I used to frighten myself with that. And I used to virtually shout, you know, stop, stop. I don't want time to continue. And of course, I feel like that now because I haven't got very much left. Um, and I think there's a sense when you get to your 80s, I'm one of the oldest people I know, and um, uh, they're going. My generation are dying off. I'm one of the few who can remember these repressive parents. I'm one of the few who can remember all the odd eccentricities. And that's the destiny of all of us, and it feels it feels both calm, in that I'm not particularly frightened of dying, but it makes you feel you have to cherish the time. A phrase I hate is declining years. They're not declining. The years that I am living are every much as vivid as yours. My day is as long. 24 hours full of richness, the world about us, the people we love, and the activities we share. Each day is as rich in my 80s as it was in my teens. And I think it's important to say that because our society sees old people as um, failing, suffering from ailments, presenting social problems, not having enough care. And in fact, this is an exhilarating sense now in which people are living for much longer, mm. you will probably all live into your 90s 
give or take one or two motor accidents. <laughs> Not, but, you, but you will, and you, you, you need to know that. You need to know that there's a long, long time ahead which will not be declining. It will be every bit as rich. So you do have fantastic opportunities which didn't exist when I was younger. Let me ask you about your work in the House of Lords um, and, and what, what, what you thought it was like before you got there and what you found when you arrived and how it's changed. Well, it hasn't changed enough. Obviously, the House of Lords needs a massive reform. Massive reform, but it, no, how can I express it? It's very, it's like hog, let's start with Hogwarts. <laughs> it's very like Hogwarts in that it's beautiful to look at, it's very sort of Victorian, it's very cushioned and carpeted and curtained, so it looks like Hogwarts. And it does feel like Hogwarts in that it's rather, it's amazingly traditional. Um, I arrived three years ago and it does need enormous change. There are still 50-odd um, peers who are, who are there because of their parentage, their hereditary. There are 26 bishops, which seems a little overkill, really. How many bishops is enough? I want <laughs> three or four? <laughs> I'll settle for three or four. Anyway. Um, they're very good, the bishops, because they, they speak out on poverty, about which mm. I have very strong feelings. And, of course, they have got the, they're the experts. Bishops know about people who are poor because they're in their diocese, so they always get up and make a big case about poverty. Um, I, hate, I sit on the Labour benches, so not surprisingly, I disapprove of what's going on in the government at the moment. So we're carrying quite a fight into the uh, enemy camp. We are often defeating the government. I have to say, we defeat the government with some 10 times now, it doesn't make a damn sight bit of difference. Although, if you remember, we forced um, a U-turn when um, George Osborne was axing the credits. We felt we fought a good fight last week because the government is trying to reduce the benefits given to disabled people, genuinely disabled people, they're trying to reduce their benefits from £120 a week to £72 a week, and we wondered, who would want to do that? Why would you want to do that? And what is, what is the need to do that? And why can't the money be come from somewhere else? So um, we've, we've pressed very hard on that, and, and that feels worth doing. That feels worth doing. It, I will, I will say my mother is one of those people who's been affected by that, um, been threatened by that, and is absolutely terrified and doesn't understand. As a disabled person, she's not because of her disability, but she doesn't understand why you would choose to do that, why you would make that choice, and it is a choice. Um, I wanted to ask you um, about the line, the thinking man's crumpet, which has haunted you, which has haunted you. And it, I mean, this is an expression that went viral before we knew about things going viral. Um, and not talking about syphilis. Um, and um, I wonder how you, how you felt when you, when you heard that at the time and what the impact was on your career. Because it's easy to laugh about it, but it's a really, you know, it's a big thing. Well, it was the 1960s. 
And I was one of the few women presenting a program. Again, it was the 1960s. Skirts were as short as they are now, but it was very much more shocking in those days. Um, I, I presented a program about three or four times a week, which gave me quite a high profile. So the newspapers wanted to do profiles. And um, there was a very witty and urbane commentator comic writer called Frank Muir and the Radio Times did a profile and rang various people to ask what they thought of me and it was Frank who coined the phrase that I was a thinking man's crumpet. Well, um, it, it was charming at the time and he was a friend and he was a flirt and he, that was his view. It, in the long term it was a damn nuisance because all the people who managed the BBC, who were male in those days, went along with that as a definition of what the sort of place I might have in the schedules. Mm. And they wouldn't, I mean, I did not. I wanted to be a serious journalist, and they saw me as a very non-serious journalist. So it was, if you're talking about the development of a feminist um, mm. career, a real problem and a real nuisance and real nuisance. A lot of women said, oh, I'd, I'd like to be called that. I wouldn't mind that at all. And I can see that it was flattering, but it was, in career terms, a nuisance. I've had to fight through it yeah. to get to the other side. And you did fight through it. Yeah, eventually. But, you know, days, years roll on, decades roll on. Mm. OK, I'm going to take a couple of questions for, for Joan. The question there from Nikki. Yeah, how do you bring it all to life, whether you're writing about the, the, the past or the present, because both seem equally vivid to you? Because they all exist in, in me. They all exist in my own mind and my imagination. And this is the thing that happens as you get older. Goodness me, I do sound like granny, but then I am a granny. <laughs> You, you remember everything, and you remember it with a different kind of tenderness for different ages. And as I'm still active and still a working journalist and still a broadcaster and so on, um, and still trying to achieve something in, in the House of Lords, I wish you wouldn't call me a baroness, it's a terrible phrase. However, I'm, I'm a working peer, there's work to be done. But as you, as you get older, the whole of the past remains vivid. The whole of your past remains vivid from your very earliest memories. Some people remember being in their prams. I don't remember that. But I do remember taking my first steps. Um, and because you're getting older and the less lying ahead, you spend more time reminiscing about what might have, what was what life was like and what might have been different, um, how the world has changed, how has it got better? I mean, has the world got better? That's a, you know, just a small question to start with. <laughs> a lot of things have got better. Th amazingly, things have got better. One of the great revolutions is music. I mean, if you look back, I mean, Beethoven didn't hear a lot of his music. Berlioz never heard the Trojans. Bruckner never heard the Fifth Symphony. They didn't hear it because in those days you needed a patron, an orchestra, a, a concert hall, and an audience. Now, 
we only have to put two buds in our ears and the phone and the iPhone on, and we can hear Beethoven, Bruckner, Berlioz, anything, and as well as the entire spectrum of the pop music that's been blossoming since the 50s. The change in music is incredible. Uh, when I was a teenager, I had a record player, and you lifted a um, head and you put it on a scratchy record that went round and round. The scratchy record initially there were 78s and they broke if you left them on the side and happened to lean on them and sit up it broke. Then came in the longer discs, the vinyl but you had the, mach the machine. You didn't have an abundance. You had to share your records. I mean, there's the famous story, isn't there, of Mick Jagger and, um, um, and Keith Wood me meeting on the station and sharing their records because they could only afford one record and they both shared. Well, I shared records. We used to go round to each other's houses to listen to music. We live surrounded by music. It's just wonderful what has happened, and people haven't really noticed. It's just become part of their lives. So wonderful things have changed for the better. Uh, record players having, of course, come right round. I got one for Christmas last year, and I'd never had one. I was really excited by it. Um, this seems like a good place to leave it. Thank you so much, Joan. Thank you so, so much.